Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co-founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Mankind has communicated through stories since the first cave paintings. Our ability to contextualize through storytelling is what sets us apart as a species. And every week on Adventures in Finance, I'm joined by wonderful guests who share their wisdom and knowledge through stories of their own, all of them born of personal experience, some of it painful, some of it rewarding. But for both them and those of us who get the chance to hear them, they're all educational. As we bring our latest season to a close, we look back at some of those stories as we pick out some of the highlights from the last 15 episodes. This week, on Adventures in Finance, the best of season two. Today is the 28th of December 2017. We are almost done with another year. Welcome to episode 48 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, amazingly, given it's the week between Christmas and New Year, is my trusty producer, James. It's like magic, isn't it? It is like magic. I, 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 I wished for you and here you are. There's my Christmas wish come true. <laughs> One of them, anyway. It disturbs me slightly. Yeah. <laughs> now, this week we uh, have decided to go the extra mile and do no new work whatsoever. And instead, we're going to put together a best of uh, clip show for you and just give you a reminder of some of the fantastic guests we had in season two of Adventures in Finance. We started season two in style when Kyle Bass joined me to co-host the first show of the new season. And we found ourselves talking about Kyle's childhood. I grew up in a in a great family uh, with I have a I have a sister three years younger than I and I had a, I had a great uh, mother and father. My mom uh, didn't didn't work. She dedicated her life to the betterment of her children and and which is a, a job in itself. And my my dad, <laughs> Amen uh, to that. my my dad was kind of in hotel management, and so we grew up call it uh, lower middle class. And and I and I give you this background because what's what's important is, as I got to a point my um, my sophomore year of college where I had I had always worked my whole life. My parents had never saved any money, uh, and they had never saved any for me for for school. So from the day I was from the day I was thirteen uh, on, I mowed yards in the summer. I had a summer job starting uh, in a seasonal job at a water park starting when I was 14. And I've worked every day of my life since I was 13 and trying to save. And so one of the defining moments in my life was that realizing that, um, again, you have influences that you have, you have things in your life that influence you. Some of them are positive influences and some of them are actually negative influences. And the negative influences tend to push me harder. Uh, and, and one of the key influencers in my life was the fact that, that we never had enough capital to do the things that other people were doing. And what I mean by that is like, let's say go out to dinner, uh, a couple of nights a week, or, you know, again, I'm not saying achieve material success or anything like that. I'm just saying 
like live live a life live the life that that you want to live and in, in its basic terms and so i started working when i was when i was young and i swore i was going to save and i saved nonstop. and i got to this point where I got into uh, Texas Christian University, I got a scholarship for springboard diving and for uh, and for academics uh, because I worked hard in school. And um, when I was in college, one day, you know, I was paying my way through college. I was a Division One scholarship athlete. In theory, you couldn't have a job as a Division One athlete because of the pay-to-play problems with football. But I had every odd job I could find, but I could never. Um, earn enough to pay for my books, my food, and all of these things at school. And one day, I literally was trying to scrape change together to eat. <laughs> and I said, this will never happen to me another day in my <laughs> life. And so that, that was a moment where I felt like um, I, had a, I had gotten myself into a situation where I was spending more than I could earn. And that was partially because, or primarily because, I was, I was pushing through an education uh, but that that inspired me, and 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 therefore I always said that from the day I graduate college, I'm going to save at least fifty cents of every dollar I'll, I'll ever earn, and I've done that. Uh, and so, from a perspective of seeing how my parents, who had a great fam, we had a great family, but they had their own shortcomings, and those shortcomings really drove me um, to save. Um, and so that was a real defining moment in my life, uh, my, my sophomore year in college. Episode 33 saw me joined by Hugh Hendry, and Hugh talked about how he believed the macro model may be broken. Now, interestingly enough, what we didn't know was that very day Hugh was closing down his hedge fund. On the 19th of October, uh, 2003, uh, my, my, my first child, uh, my son Cameron was born and uh, he had colic, you know, he just, you know, had irritable bowels, I think, like his father. <laughs> um, and it, it made him a, a, you know, a tough baby. He was crying all the time. And, and my wife was at home looking after this baby that just cried 24-7. And I had launched this hedge fund. And I had launched this hedge fund very much um, filled, filled up with gold and that was a tough time. <laughs> um, you know, we, we had Gordon Brown selling gold, et cetera, um, for the U, uh, UK Treasury. And gold didn't really ultimately uh, stop uh, falling until, I want to say, March, April of the following year, which six months is a heck of a long time in, in, in new hedge fund dog yes. life. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I was just miserable, miserable, miserable. Um, I could see my future disappearing before my, my very eyes. And I'd come home and I'd have this crying baby. I'd have this mad wife who was <laughs> in tears. And then I'd be, I mean, it was just grip cry sessions. And uh, I think just letting it rip and letting just letting those tears flow was certainly uh, cathartic. Um, so that's kind of whatever is funny. But here we are 15 years later. And, and I would... Yeah, I don't wish to be uh, overly dramatic, but um, if I'm candid, I have to say to you that my concern is that the global macro model, I'm beginning to think that it's broken. Um, global macro model was essentially, where um, essentially it was contextual, you know, for the longest time, um, you enjoyed really what were quite high and positive real yields 
from investing in sovereign government bonds, especially yeah. in America. And, and they were stubbornly high because we all had this great fear that inflation was about to return. And it just meant that, that uh, whilst the returns nominal versus other securities were not great, the kind of risk-adjusted profile was such that you could leverage those fixed income positions and suddenly you had something really, mm-hmm. really turbocharged. And that would pay for what is an expensive facility. Running a hedge fund is expensive and, and sadly it's only got tougher and tougher. Nigh on impossible, I'd say, actually. Um, and, and, but you could cover those costs and then periodically uh, you, you're charged with taking on largely negative convex bets on, on other risk assets. So uh, 2008 comes around and, and you get an extraordinary return on top of this golden bounty of these fixed income returns. And so it made it made us all, made uh, others perhaps more than me, but it made, it made them true global superstars. Um, and the sector saw an immense allocation of, of client capital. And as you know, since 2012, um, and really with the successful um, implementation of quantitative easing, um, those real returns have only gone one way, they've fallen. Uh, today, US 10-year real yields are 0.3%. And even with leverage, and I, I would advise leveraging what now is an expensive asset class, but even with leverage, it's hard for those gross returns to cover the management of um, a hedge fund and the regulatory cost, and indeed, you know the the periodic convex uh, bearish bets. So, um, I think we're at a juncture. I think we're going to lose more and more of these vehicles. And the paradox and the irony, one of my favourite sort of areas, is that. And we'll come back to this, you know, the, my berating of your black knight tendencies. <laughs> um, I don't see a crisis um, immediately uh, in terms of, I don't know, 18 to 24 months. But I'm pretty sure that when we do exhibit and feel the full brunt of a crisis, the great shock is that the negative correlation, the diversification offered by U.S. Treasuries um, is just not going to be there. That um, whilst this the the if you will short intermediate time frame to my mind, I, I know this is not an exercise in pontificating about the future, but I, I think we're kind of the passage is quite secure and safe-ish, if you will. Um, but I've never known a time where client portfolios or wealth portfolios are sitting there so unprotected. Uh, from whatever may may happen, whatever may be beyond my uh, ability to comprehend. So this is a, this is a, a an immensely difficult time. It's an immensely difficult time for me. You know, I'm I'm not just speaking um, generically. Uh, I I now invest with fear. You know, I mean, I always invested with fear. I, I you know, um, a, a former. Uh, an investment partner of mine uh, very kindly was submitting uh, a client ref- uh, reference or referral. And his point was the thing that makes me a great investor, I mean, his words, not mine, was that um, I just have a low um, self of self esteem and I'm, I'm really not that confident. I'm not that confident about anyone's ability to predict the future. And if you will, it's that lack of confidence. Again, which goes back, if, if I go back and repeat myself, which has served me well because I've always been able to deal with mistakes. I've never had those mistakes be be so great. Um, and so, again, we have to push off my kind of 
tendency to be morose, but it just, it, you know, um, investing with that, I just don't know what happens in the future. This is my best stab at it. And what if I lose another client? Can I pay my bills? It's, mm. I, I wouldn't wish anyone today. And indeed it's impossible. I would say now for anyone to come through, um, um, from a small amount of money and, and really make the big time. And, and I lament that. I lament that. That's sad. And, and, and I, f- I fear maybe in two years' time, people might, you know, if some unknown event does cause some uh, some harm, I, I think people say, but where were the hedge funds? Right. Exactly. Like, well, you fired them. Hugh also had an interesting question for Jim Rogers. Oh, Jim. Um, I remember uh, meeting Jimmy, um, and I, I'd been invited to um, an after-conference party at a Russian oligarch's apartment overlooking Red Square. And uh, at the room, I had Jimmy Rogers, uh, Nassim Taleb, and, and a few others. And Nassim Taleb, you know, anyone who's met him, I mean, he's great fun, but he, he is stark raving bonkers um and so he would come up to me and say ah and he puts on this french voice ah Oog Andri, ah. and then he said to me who are you again <laughs> like uh hugh Andrew. and then i turn around and i'd be sitting with with jimmy and jimmy would you get into pocket you get into his trouser pocket and he'd bring out a gold coin but ah, oh, gold feel the gold gold's going up you should you should own gold I'm like, yeah, no, I get that, Jimmy. And then, like, five minutes later, in another conversation, he goes into his jacket pocket and he bring out, I don't know, a sachet of sugar. It's like, you should be buying sugar. And so I was like, Jimmy, what have you got in that suit? I mean, that's my kind of one of my memories of Jimmy. But the question would be, so what's in Jimmy's, what's in Jimmy's trouser pocket to do? <laughs> you, you can tack that on to the end. <laughs> Oh, without context, possibly the greatest question that's ever been asked on a podcast. <laughs> Jimmy, what's in your trousers? <laughs> much, as lo- much as I would dearly love to. I-, I just don't think I can ask him what's in his trousers. <laughs> Episode 34 saw me joined by the legendary Jim Rogers. And Jim talked me through a couple of defining moments in his life. And the first one of those showed just how a chance encounter with the right professor can change the course of a young man's life. I guess the defining, when I was a senior at university, I was going to go to law school and business school and medical school. You know, I was a confused young man. One day I went down to the, uh, the, the companies would come to the university to interview students. So I went down to have interviews, to have that experience. Uh, one of the guys uh, I liked a great deal. He worked on Wall Street. I knew nothing about Wall Street. <laughs> except that something bad happened in 1929. I knew it was in New York, but nothing else. I didn't know there was a difference in stocks and bonds in those days, but I liked the guy and uh, he offered me a summer job. So I went to take the summer job. I needed a summer job. I was going off to graduate school. I took the, the job and I fell in love. I didn't go to law school or business school or medical school. As soon as I could, I went to Wall Street. I couldn't believe that they would pay me to do what I loved. What I loved at that time as a you know, young 21-year-old was I loved the world and what was happening in the world. And here was a place that would pay me and pay me a lot if I did it well to know about the world. I couldn't believe it. So I, I went straight to Wall Street as soon as I could. And what, how did that go down with your parents? Were, were they excited for you to go to become a lawyer or a doctor? Because that's, that's every parent's dream, I guess. 
Well, my mother was uh, quite uh, determined that I would be a doctor. Uh, her <laughs> father had been a, a lawyer. Uh, it was everybody's plan at that university in those days to, to go to law school. Uh, my parents, for, for, as far as they were concerned, they really didn't have much clue about Wall Street. You have to remember, I was from the backwoods of Alabama, and Wall Street was a faraway place where nobody knew anything at all except 1929. My next co-host was another legend. Jim Grant joined me for a wonderful hour of reminiscing. And when we got to talking about Jim's defining moments, and Jim spoke about an early detour in his life when he went away to college to study the French horn, of all things, and he explained how things from there took a slightly different path than he'd expected. Ah, forks. Um, yeah, it, sounds like, it sounds like a cryptocurrency, the fork. Um, uh, I guess I forked at the age of uh, 18. I had uh, grown up uh, 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 very determined and, and slightly talented, underscore slightly. We'll get back to that in a second. Uh, player of the French horn. I was going to be a musician. Uh, my father was a Juilliard trained uh, timpanist and uh, performed with the Pittsburgh Symphony under Fritz Reiner. He was very, very good at what he did, and I had a mind to do that. And uh, uh, so I go away to, to uh, school, and, um, and six months later, I am a dropout and uh, uh, aboard the USS Hornet, which is an aircraft carrier. But from that um, choice, that decision to uh, put aside music and do something, the name of which I didn't even know, um, uh, that was, I guess, the uh, that was the... Uh, a very formative uh, decision, and, a, and a, certainly a, an anxious one for my parents at the time. They thought they were raising a scholar and, a, and an artist, and here I was, a gunner's mate. But, but, but what was it that, that made you make that choice? Because obviously, coming from a musical family like that, it, those choices are always that much harder to make than, than I guess, the, the, the random legal career that went down the tubes for some reason. Yeah. Well, um, I realized uh, that I was slightly talented, and um, uh, there's a big difference between that and being uh, cut out for the very highest reaches of a, of a given uh, career or art. And I think also, I was, you know, as, as I mentioned, 17 or 18 as I did this, I, I, I actually enlisted in the Navy um, in the Naval Reserve about uh, two days after my 17th birthday. That's about as early as you could do it. Uh, and I wanted to... to put down a marker to get away from home and to have an adventure. I grew up in the middle of, uh, of suburban Long Island. I wanted something that I, I couldn't quite uh, put my finger on, but that something was not to be found in Nassau County in Williston Park, New York. So I was committed by that act of impetuosity at the age of 17 to uh, two years of active duty, and I, I wanted uh, to, um, to be a proper uh, sailor as opposed to uh, a French horn player. The following week, I was joined by Preston Pish, who, along with Stig Broderson, co-hosts the Investors Podcast. Preston had a background which perhaps surprised a lot of people, and he took us from behind a microphone to behind the controls of an Apache attack helicopter in Afghanistan. So here's a story. So I'm over in Afghanistan. The very first time that I got in what we call a kinetic engagement, where we were actually shooting the aircraft, I remember this as clear as like it happened yesterday. And, um, you know, because it was such a, it was such a profound moment that you, 
you wonder if that's ever going to happen to you uh, when you're training and you're going and you're flying and you're shooting gunnery tables back in the United States and you practice and you practice all this stuff. And you, I guess in the back of my mind, I, I guess I always felt like, ah, I'm learning all this stuff, but I doubt I'll probably ever use it. And sure enough, like I definitely used it. And, um, you know, I remember in Afghanistan, the very first time that I got in a kinetic engagement with, you know, an enemy force. And I just remember this feeling in my body where like, you were just like, um, it's really kind of hard to, to describe, but your mind is, is kind of going wild. Like, um, inside of my brain, like I could just, it was hard for me to focus because you were just like, holy crap, like somebody could literally shoot around straight through my right. cockpit into my face. And like, so like your mind is going so wild. I can only imagine what the neurons looked like as this was happening. But um, after, you know, after I don't know how long I couldn't be able to quantify the time, but eventually it was like, okay, well, let's just get into what I've been trained and what my habits are to start, you know, prosecuting the target here. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, the thing that I really remember about that is the importance of calm and like how insanely important it was for me to um, really calm myself down because I mean, I was just like uh, the adrenaline. You can't even describe the amount of adrenaline that was going sure. through my body at that point. Now, what was interesting was after that first experience, and I remember like uh, the thing I really took away from that first engagement, that first experience was like, whoa, my, my adrenaline was just overtaking my entire body and I couldn't even focus and, and do a good job at what I needed to do. It was, it was really a bad, it was mm -hmm. a bad engagement, you know, as far as like my ability to, to, to execute in a quick and timely manner. But as time went on and I had, you know, pretty much these kinetic engagements every single day throughout the whole summer in Kandahar, this was during the surge. I was there during the surge when they dropped the whole new yeah. brigade into Kandahar. So it was, it was wild. And, um, what I found is the second time I was much more calm. The third time I was much more calm. And then, you know, by the 10th or 20th or 30th time that I was, that I was doing these kinetic engagements, it started to, I, I knew as soon as the radio call came on, Hey, you're taking fire or, Hey, we need you to, to shoot here or whatever the, the radio call was. My mind immediately started going to, all right, time to, to, be calm and collective. And it almost was, it was, it was interesting because the first engagement was crazy, but by the 10th or 20th or 30th or whatever, it was actually to the point where I felt like I actually got uh, more calm when yeah. it happened. And I started, cause I knew that that's the environment that I had to be in in order to do the job appropriately. And so when I, when I compare that to the markets and how I look at finance now, um, when things kind of go crazy and you see the, um, the the ten percent jump or the ten percent drop or whatever, it's it, I go back to kind of that experience and I say, okay, so let's not let's not get emotional here, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. kind of yeah. it's kind of the response because that's that's really what was happening, you know, during that first engagement was you're very emotional and you're just you can't think appropriately, and applying that to the markets is an absolute uh, comparison and something that I learned by going through that is like, Hey, I can't make a wise decision right now because there's too much emotional charge in my brain that yeah. uh, I've got to take a step back and, and go through this in a thoughtful manner.
And, and it was, was crazy is there was no amount of preparation that I could have ever done to prepare myself for what that was going to feel like. Yeah. And it was the wildest feeling because I just remember how it was, it was like somebody had done a lobotomy on me and like <laughs> literally removed my brain and put it over there on the shelf. And like, I was without a brain, like looking at my brain over there, like, <laughs> what the hell do I do? You know? And it was, it took a couple, you know, I can't remember the time of, of how long it took, but eventually I kind of came around and, and then things calmed down inside of my mind. And I, then I was able to start doing what I was, what I was supposed to do. Episode 37 saw me joined by a dear friend of mine, Dr. Harold Malmgren. Harold's had an unbelievable career. He's spent four terms in the White House with different presidents, and he has a wealth of stories. But what I wanted to talk to him about, given what was going on with North Korea at the time, and in fact, still going on with North Korea, was how that compared to his time in the White House during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Harold took us right back into the room in the White House with Bobby and John Kennedy, McGeorge Bundy, and Robert McNamara. It was a new period, and I happened to be an academic, but I knew all of these academics at Harvard, Yale, MIT. So uh, McGeorge Bundy, the NSC director, called me and said, Harold, you're teaching, and that's great, but we want you to come to Washington. We've got some things we'd like you to do here. And so that's how I came, and I was put in the Pentagon as my first assignment, basically to be an aide to Secretary of Defense McNamara, but uh, used as a utility infielder playing different positions at the baseball game. And at the time of the crisis, I was assigned to the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a civilian, but in charge of evaluating, counting, and what that really gets to is targeting. What do you hit? How big is the damage? How many fatalities will there be? Uh, what are you trying to accomplish? And assessing what the Russians had and how they might use it. Part of a scenario is a lot of it was counting. I mean, trying to match, do we have more than they do, or can we apply it better? And to try to stir the military people to think about these things. So, so I was there, and suddenly this event happened. And they, the first thing I was told is, you got to uh, give up your office here and move down into the bowels of the Pentagon because our command center is quite far, quite that far down below. And um, so during the crisis, I was going to that place, which was the um, place where if you're going to make a decision, this is where this is where the buttons get pushed and the things start happening. So pretty exciting, pretty depressing, because as the tensions built up, it was clear that war was possible. And then a really interesting development. We, there had been a planned a chain of command that would exist if, some, if Washington was hit. And a lot of the people who were supposed to uh, go to Ida Mount Weather or a couple of other places in Virginia or West Virginia uh, said, well, I'll go, but I got to take my wife and kids. And then they were told, no, you, you can't do that. And so and none of the cabinet officers or sub-cabinet officers who were appointed to do this went. And uh, the only people who went were maintenance people who were happy to go because they were going to be safe. And so this, the, the, that 
whole system of what do we do after the war starts collapsed before it started. But what I'm giving you is a sense that it, it was really felt that something was about to happen. Uh, so the decisions made in those few days were under that cloud that we're not dealing with theory here. We're trying to calculate at what time and what trigger. It's a little bit like watching the markets. You know, when will the markets tip yeah. in some direction or other? Right. But it wasn't just a matter of how much money you might win or lose. It was how many people will die. we got to slow this down if we can, refine it, and try to figure out a way to, to discourage both sides, which actually finally succeeded. Because the, out, the alternative was horrendously bad. There was no outcome that did not involve, uh, if I can put it bluntly, mega deaths. We didn't talk about thousands or hundreds of thousands of fatalities. We talked about megadeaths, meaning millions or more. Sure. And we were calculating 40 million, 60 million, 80 million, wow. large numbers. Wow. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. and we were also talking about those are the initial fatalities, but of course the radiation effects, the effect on agriculture and water and everything else long-term it meant you know, whatever number we came up with, double or triple it for the long-term effects. So we were talking about the end of just about everything in North America and and the vast area covered by the Soviet Union. This was on a scale that's hard to understand. I was asked in a Senate hearing at a later time about, about it, and he said, how did you calculate it? I said, well, <laughs> the smallest number I could use was megadeths. And he was—he couldn't believe what I was talking about until I really spelled it out. Of course, he said I had no idea. First, there is the question of how big a military threat, or let's say uh, how big a threat to the U.S. interests, how big a threat to the U.S. homeland. Because Kim Jong-un, and I never can quite pronounce it correctly, uh, has threatened things like striking the U.S. homeland and burning the White House and, and such things. Now, it sounds preposterous, but in 1962, during the crisis, one of the tasks I had was to look at what the Soviet military might be thinking about that would be asymmetric or unexpected. And mix of intelligence and technical work that the military had done watching the tests of the, of the Soviets, I concluded that the Russians were trying to develop a means of lofting into orbit a mid-sized nuclear weapon that would cross Antarctica and come from the south and be exploded over the center of the U.S. with the intent to... Now, uh, let me stop and just say, why from the south? Because all our radars and sensors were pointing north towards Russia. Right. So they thought, maybe we could get this weapon to come from behind, and we would not know it until too late. This sounds like a high-tech Maginot line. Yeah. Uh, you know, low-orbit sat uh, satellite a laden nuclear weapon and exploded quite high so that the electromagnetic pulse, the diameter or the radius, let's say, would be line of sight 
So if it's high enough and it could see the east and west coast, it would cover the whole U.S. It would mobilize command and control, all communications, all power grids. It would take out all the entire electrical system. It's pretty, pretty uh, bad because the consequence would be leaving the U.S. without distribution, without means of moving water, power. In those days, that would be serious, not as serious as today, because we don't, you know, we, we can't live for seconds without using a smartphone or right. doing a selfie. But in those days, it was important. Now, the Russians did not succeed in developing or refining the technology, but they were hard at work. Why do I bring this up? Because I have found that over the last year or so, uh, I, I kept pushing to find out why does the North Korean leader keep talking about devastating the whole homeland of the U.S.? Why does he use terms like that, burning the White House? And the conclusion was, after a lot of exchange with people who had thought bits and pieces about this, I concluded that they had somehow gone back in their technology development to this idea and wanted to replicate it. And then more recently, because I pursued this discussion with people, uh, let's say, in, in the decision-making roles here and in some of the Asian countries, it, it has become apparent that the Russian, some Russians, whether it's the Russian government or Russian scientists left over and paid well, or the sons and daughters of Russian scientists, there is a team that is assisting North Korea to develop this exact same technology. Now, they haven't mastered it yet, but it is conceivable that they could master it within, say, two years, in my judgment. There's a book called One Second After, a novel about an EMP exploded by a rogue nation over the U.S. And if people haven't read it, they should read it because it's pretty scary. But it's, it's an accurate description of what happens if an EMP works. Now, keeping that in mind, I think there is a time horizon where the U.S. itself will be subject to an extreme threat. And the North Korean leader is has shown keen interest in how to extort other countries and how to use hostages. Uh, well, with, North, with South Korea, the hostages, who are they, are the South Korean population plus a couple of hundred thousand American citizens plus uh, our 30,000 or so uniformed personnel. Uh, but if he could hold hostage of a large part of the U.S. to something like that, he could play it in lots of ways. Uh, I'm not sure he really wants to go to war with the U.S., but I think he wants to uh, disable the U.S. responding to things that he does want to do. And I'm sure he would like to have the same technology available to threaten anybody else who got in his way, even China. So just let's put that out there as something he's aiming for. In the meantime, he's trying out different kinds of missiles. And then he he threatened Guam. Uh, he didn't say he would hit Guam. He said he would splash them down at a, at a distance from Guam. But to make a point, he's talked about exploding a 
hydrogen bomb over the Pacific, not to kill anybody, but to uh, send a message. Um, of course, it would send a lot of radiation around the world also, so that it wouldn't be damaged less. Now, if you're sitting in Washington, you're thinking about these things, and especially if you're thinking about his ultimate uh, ability to threaten the whole of the U.S. or large parts of it, then your thinking has to focus in on how long can we wait. And that's where Washington is now in the, in the security discussions at the highest level. Some of the some of the tests that have gone up, you know, the New York Times reported, well, yes, they got a certain distance, but they didn't have a re-entry vehicle. So it doesn't prove anything. Well, I read those kinds of reports and thought uh, they weren't necessarily trying to think about re-entry. They were trying to think about exploding something up in the air. You know, and then friends of mine in the in that system, let's call it the defense security system confirmed, oh, you're absolutely right, but nobody else thought about it, and we don't want to alarm the public. But yes, that's what they're trying to do, is something different. Now, what he has done, this Korean leader, has also placed our old-fashioned artillery all along the border. And if there is some kind of conflict, we can assume that all of that artillery, supposedly 12,000 pieces, which is a lot, will, by default, start firing at Seoul. A lot of this artillery is actually located in, in smaller space, more close to each other, so easy for us to target and blow up. But they would certainly be able to get, around, get off a few rounds, so there would be a lot of deaths, including Americans and probably American uniformed personnel. Um, so how do you plan the options. The president has uh, and Mattis have said we have a few options. Sometimes they've said we have four or five. In the, me in the meantime, separately from all of this, and the press ha and media in the U.S. has barely noticed, Mattis and General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and an array of admirals and generals went to Beijing about three weeks ago. Now, to understand the meaning of that, is, it's a very significant event, because the two militaries essentially met for what reason? Because they want to avoid a mutual conflict. So one of the topics is, how do we avoid getting into trouble with each other about North Korea? Another would be, how do we avoid your planes getting too close to our planes and having an accident, as happened a few years back when one of our surveillance aircrafts was struck by a Chinese aircraft and our surveillance aircraft fell on Hainan, the, the island where most of the military development takes place in China. It's, not, it's quite natural. Militaries like to have communication systems to warn each other in ways that avoid accidents. Uh, with all this hardware up there, it's easy to have accidents, particularly since there are pilots who have some discretion, and uh, there's always somebody who wants to show off to the others. So that meeting took place. Um, now, she met with—she asked for a private meeting with Dunford, the chairman of our Joint Chiefs, 
And he had photographs taken of he and our chairman of the Joint Chiefs alone without staff in the picture. And those pictures were all over Chinese news. It was Xi's way of saying to the Chinese people, don't worry about accidents with, with the U.S. I'm in charge here, and he's in charge there with the machine. So it, it was a subtle way of saying, don't worry about Trump. This is under control. In episode 38, we took a look back on the 30th anniversary of the 1987 crash. And amongst the fantastic array of guests we had was Art Cashin. And Art tells a story like no others. And he very kindly recounted his story from that momentous day, the 19th of October, 1987, as he prepared for whatever was about to befall the New York Stock Exchange. I had uh, made some phone calls and recommended that uh, key members of the staff try and get there early already around the world equity markets and other places were down between eight and ten percent so we knew that this was going to be uh, quite a day indeed so i and one or two of my partners having satisfied ourselves that everything was in good working order um, and we were fully staffed went up to the stock exchange luncheon club uh, to grab a quick cup of coffee before the day started in earnest uh, by accident, we wound up at a table uh, not too far away from the table at which uh, John Phelan, the chairman of the stock exchange, was sitting with several of his aides. And the sense of anxiety was added to by noticing that every five minutes or so, uh, a separate aide to Phelan came running in, whispered in his ear. He uh, quickly and quietly consulted with some of the people around him. And... Um, there were, there were no smiles on any of the faces, so uh, it was pretty evident that they were assuming we were going to have a tough day, too. So at any rate, uh, having finished the coffee, uh, we decided to head to the floor to make sure we were uh, ready when things got started. I went up, uh, Phil and I were fairly friendly, and I went up to his table, and I put my right arm across my chest and gave him the... Uh, Gladiator salute, moratori te salutamus esse. We who are about to die salute you. And John had had enough Latin that he understood what I was saying, and he just uh, solemnly nodded his head and said, see you on the floor. From the get-go, uh, the order flow was heavy, uh, and to the cell side, uh, some uh, market moves look slightly disproportionate. Some of the uh, uh, specialists avail themselves of uh, a procedure we had here at the time of being able to indicate stocks. If uh, XYZ had closed at 55 and you thought it was going to open down around 40, uh, that's an awfully big surprise to people. So to get them to understand what was going on, you might put an indication up of 3842 and uh, let that rest there for a couple of minutes before trading would begin so that people in Iowa and elsewhere would uh, get, get to know that things were going to be trading at those prices. In the meantime, uh, in Chicago, uh, they didn't have an ability to uh, halt or delay individual stocks, so they had to trade the entire index. So that opened immediately, and it opened 
down uh, in a sharp fashion. And that set up a strange uh, kind of arbitrage opportunity in which uh, the Dow, which had closed around, uh, I think, around 2,200 or somewhere, uh, would be trading at 2,100 in uh, New York, and the equivalent uh, in Chicago would be trading at 2,000 or below. So uh, that created in people's minds the impression that, gee, I want to sell them in New York because I can possibly get a better price. That impression led to more and more selling, not just the people who were trading in Chicago, but others who decided that uh, I want to sell in New York to get that opportunity. Now, the key thing that would uh, exacerbate what happened for the balance of the day was that what you really had here uh, were two parallel highways um, with vastly different rules. And uh, yet, at the same time, because of uh, the ability uh, to sell one versus the other, the equivalent of those highways with the separate and very different rules uh, was that they had interchanges so that at any given time, somebody who had some difficulty selling in Chicago would zip onto the highway in New York at a completely different speed and try and get things done. And that and that kind of, if you would, zigging and zagging back and forth that never allowed the markets to get... Uh, uh, really stable. So we opened with a with a gap down in both places. Um, they were um, continuing to sell. Uh, the um, chairman of the SEC was relatively new. He had uh, recently been appointed. He was out giving a speech at a hotel in uh, Washington, and on his uh, way out and heading back to the SEC. Um, he was asked uh, about the market, and the topic of a possible trading halt came up, and that's, he seemed to hint that under certain circumstances, the market uh, could have uh, a halt. And that kind of added to the sense of panic because, uh, number one, you don't want to go in, even though things look cheap, you don't want to rush in and buy them if they're thinking of halting trading because then you can't get out. The rally can never start. So that in its own way helped to dissuade buyers and uh, made the sellers even more nervous. And they uh, they pushed to um, uh, sell. From the standpoint of uh, the brokers, as we moved into the afternoon, and the selling remained relentless, and, and we began trading at prices that you almost felt you were in a uh, a movie dream sequence. You knew the price you were trading at, but you couldn't actually believe it was real. You didn't think, I can't, I can't be selling this stock at this price, can I? And how is that actually possible? The order flow continued to race in faster and faster. Um, and as we pushed on, there were a couple of small pauses, uh, some negligible rally attempts, but overall the pressure was tremendous, uh, and by the end of the day, the tape was running late because uh, we can trade faster than the human eye can read. So if they 
printed the, the cells as fast as they were occurring, um, the the, uh, the tape would be a blur. Nobody could recognize it. So what they did was uh, they printed them at the maximum speed that the human eye could recognize it, which meant that it theoretically fell behind in time. You, prices you were looking at had occurred an hour ago. And, and uh, to try and avoid the total panic that that might bring, uh, every once in a while they would put up what they call flash prices. And they were uh, still somewhat out of sequence, but far more recent. And they told people uh, pretty much what was going on uh, in a timely fashion. And, and you could see from the flash prices being so much lower uh, that uh, that prices were nearly in free fall, that it was as if a trap door had occurred. Um, and that continued uh, in, in uh, tremendous volume with the tape running late. And ultimately, by the end of the day, uh, we were down 508 points in the Dow, 22%, the worst day in the history of the Dow Jones and the New York Stock Exchange. When trading was halted at the normal time, everybody looked around at each other, wondering would they still be here tomorrow or the next day if if somebody had made an error in trading, if, if something came back to haunt you. Um, it could be uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So uh, while that was one of the most dramatic days of that period, and in my 50-some-odd-year career here at Wall Street on the floor, it was the next day that was the most dramatic. It was as if the wheels might, in fact, come off the locomotives. And what happened was the market rebounded on the opening, as you would expect after a 22% one-day sell-off. But after a while, prices began to roll over, and they moved lower. And when the Dow went into negative territory, you could hear an audible gasp here on the floor. And what I discovered after uh, several minutes was that what had happened was a, a kind of fluke of the business. For months before, many of the uh, major banks in the Wall Street area had gone around soliciting uh, the accounts of uh, the specialists and market makers here and over the counter uh, to provide them with their lines of credit so that they could basically borrow money to make the markets that they were making. And uh, as human nature would have it, when when the uh, senior management of those banks came in the next day and saw that the markets had dropped 22%, they immediately put themselves in a position to supersede the guy who normally ran that business, the guy who understood that business, the guy who understood how a specialist worked. And instead, they were replaced by the chairman of the bank or the vice chairman, who then proceeded to call in the specialists and tell them that they were shutting down their lines of credit. Because uh, while we know that you're obligated to stand up for what you bought yesterday, we're not so sure that the people that you sold to will stand up for what they bought. So we can't put the, uh, the bank and its clients and, and its shareholders at risk. So we're shutting down your line of credit. So one after another, the specialists came to the floor. I was a governor at the time, and they came to me and said, you're going to have to halt trading in some, several of my stocks because they've just closed my line of credit. 
and I don't have enough cash to make a market. I think I personally shut down 10 of the 30 Dow stocks, and uh, in the meantime, they went up to um, Chairman Phelan's office. He started calling around to the banks, explaining to them that they misunderstood how things were going, that they had to reopen the lines of credit, or the the whole financial system might come crashing to a halt. Uh, they wouldn't listen to him. Uh, he then reached out for um, Alan Greenspan, who had just been appointed chairman of the uh, Fed. Jerry Corrigan, who was the president of the New York Fed, he quickly understood what the problem was. He began calling around to the banks, telling them that they needed to reopen the lines of credit. Uh, perversely, they, I am told, even gave him a hard time, saying they had to think of their shareholders and, and their customers. And he, he said to them something like, I imagine, uh, listen, do you remember who I said I was? I'm the president of the New York Fed. I regulate you guys, okay? Uh, open those accounts. And uh, they were still reluctant, and I believe he had to tell them that the Fed would offer some protection for, from losses if they reopened the accounts. So the accounts were reopened. The specialists and the market makers over the counter were informed that their accounts were reopened. They came back down to me. We, we reopened the stocks we had closed, and the Dow rallied back into plus territory. And the American world of finance came that close to death, but it was saved. Next up, we took a look at Bitcoin. And joining me was Trace Mayer, who has been involved in the blockchain world since the very, very beginnings. And he explained the origins of the cryptocurrency that is gripping the entire world. So a lot of people think that Bitcoin just came out of nothing. Uh, but the tradition is actually very, very long. I mean, we had the first coining of gold thousands of years ago. We had double entry bookkeeping in the 1300s. We had the polymaths. You know, these are the universal geniuses, the people who have IQs of 180 plus, you know, Isaac Newton, Nicholas Copernicus, Johann van Goethe, all of these are immense monetary scientists. Uh, for example, Nicholas Copernicus, before he wrote the treatise on heliocentric theory, he wrote a treatise on uh, money and interest rates. Uh, Isaac Newton developed the gold standard because there was a crash with the Bank of England in 1696. Emanuel Swedenborg, the father of anatomy, the you know the the father of neuroscience, as Princeton calls him, who uh, precursed the idea of things like the neuron and and a phenomenal anatomist. He was actually master of the mines up in Sweden, and he took three years out of his scientific life to consult and help get that country back on track after they had inflationary problems. Uh, and then you have people like Johann van Goethe, who wrote Faust, considered the greatest work in German literature. He, you know, in Faust Part Two, his magnum opus published a year before he died, he lays out all the negative consequences that come to a society when they debase the money. And then we had the French Revolution. They made it illegal to use gold and silver uh, and under penalty of death, and that led to the French Revolution. So you had repression over there with Robespierre, and you had regeneration in the Americas with the continental dollar. Uh, and you had the seizing of gold with Executive Order 6102 under Roosevelt. 
and Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, all of these people made holding gold illegal because gold is not just a barbarous relic. It's an essential check and balance in the political machinery. And the polymaths, you know, humanity's brightest minds ever, all of them have understood this and all of them have been involved in money and monetary science. Next up in episode 41, we looked at the Fed as we begin the transition from the Yellen Fed to the Powell Fed. And joining me was Professor Miles Kimball of the University of Colorado Boulder. Miles is a PhD economist, and he had some rather interesting things to say about negative interest rates. I mean, the first thing is, you know, you got to recognize a lot of the things you're talking about that, like the companies uh, sitting on big piles of money and not investing them, maybe even borrowing to get a bigger pile of money and just sending it back to the to the shareholders. That was that was about the fact that the Fed didn't go go below zero. I mean if the Fed had gone below zero, I mean think you're a company, uh if if instead of having a pile of money that was kind of earning close to zero, you'd had a pile of money that was was shrinking, you know, it was earning minus 4%, uh, you might have found some investment opportunities that were better than having your money shrink at 4, 4%. And so that's, that's one of the ways you stimulate investment with um, negative interest rates is you, you make, there are some investment opportunities that once you account for risk, it's like, ah, there's risk. Uh, they, they don't look any, they don't look as attractive as just having the money sit there earning zero. But even with the risk, you're scared of the risk. But, you know, having it shrink at 4% uh, for sure doesn't sound so great. So you go out and take the risk. You know, the, the point of negative interest rates is actually for people to avoid them. You don't want anyone to actually earn negative interest rate. The, the, the point is to get people to go out and invest and build factories and write software and do, you know, do things with their funds instead of trying to leave them sitting, uh, you know, earning earning some paltry amount of interest. And but you know, zero might seem paltry, but it still looked attractive relative to taking risks. Uh, you know, people say there's a funny thing about the uh, phrase risk taking. It's one of those phrases where you can get the same person within 30 minutes talk about it as a good thing and as a bad thing, you know, but, but especially what, what makes for a recession is often when people are taking too few risks, you know, you get, you get too much of a boom when people are taking too many risks sometimes, but a in a recession, like you got to prod people to take some more risks and having the only alternative to going out and, you know, being tough and taking some risks as, as uh you know, losing money for sure is uh, is some, something you might have to do to get enough risk taken in the economy to get out of a recession. But this, I mean, we're talking now about negative 4% interest rates. I mean, we're not talking about you know, negative 25 basis points or, or yeah. 50 basis yeah, points. Yeah, as this I is... said, interest rates can go as low as they need to go. There is no limit to how low interest rates can go. Well, maybe. We're, we, we may well test that theory, I suspect, in uh, the next time we have a recession. Huh. But Episode 43 saw me joined by the fabulous Stephanie Pomboy of Macro Mavens. And Steph had a lot of insights to share on the U.S. consumer and the struggling retail sector. I think when you're looking at the consumer, you really have to cast your mind back a decade 
um, to the housing bubble. Uh, and, you know, I've been on this thesis basically since before the housing bubble burst that when it did, it would fundamentally change the U.S. consumer's behavior in that they wouldn't always be willing to borrow to fund a lifestyle that was beyond their means. And what started out as a theory became a reality after the bubble burst. And you could see that, you know, for the first part after the crisis, the first few years of the recovery, the household sector really resisted the impulse to borrow. And they actually increased their saving rate and, you know, you had sort of that new normal of weaker consumer spending because of that. Um, and for some reason, everyone sort of then forgot about that whole new normal thesis and went back to analyzing the U.S. consumer through sort of a standard pre-crisis lens where the presumption was if you gave someone an extra dollar, they would spend it. You know, there was the thought that they might actually save was sort of unfathomable. Um, and yet all the data supported, you know, you had the saving rate went all the way up to 8%. Um, and it, despite massive inflation and financial assets that swelled net worth um, and incredibly low debt service, you know, people just really were exhibiting a whole new sort of parsimony uh, on the consumer spending front. And then, of course, Obamacare happened, and the ability to be financially responsible became um, a lot harder uh, as people found one of the largest non-discretionary outlays going up substantially in price. So then after the saving rate peaked at 8%, basically the moment Obamacare went into effect in 2013, it went all the way back down to 3% because people just couldn't afford to keep up with that increase in uh, medical expenses. So, I mean, I guess with that sort of by way of broad backdrop, my starting point on the consumer has been that, you know, we were still in this new normal and that what you were seeing in terms of retail was sort of um, has been very disappointing and subdued and all the excitement about Amazon sort of missed the point that more broadly consumer spending was in this sort of weaker, longer phase and that maybe Amazon was gaining share of what would be sort of a, a less lucrative pie going forward. If you look at um, consumer uh, borrowing, uh, consumer credit versus non-discretionary outlays, now we're at the point where more than every dollar of non-discretionary spending growth is explained for, you know, is accounted for by rising borrowing. So they are increasingly having to turn to credit cards where they were trying so hard to be, you know, financially responsible. Now they really have no choice. Um, so you are seeing those debt numbers as were last week with the New York Fed on the, the quarterly household debt um, report, you know, they were all moving back up uh, just out of distress. So 
uh, it's not for nothing that you're also seeing delinquency rates go up at a time when the unemployment rate is the lowest in 17 years. And again, debt service is at record lows and net worth is at record highs. So, you know, the idea that the consumer is doing just fine is really belied by all of those developments. I mean, if you just look at the the numbers over the last five years, which I view as sort of the span post-ACA, basically, since Obamacare, um, consumer spending growth is $2.4 trillion. Incomes are up $2 trillion. So you got a problem right there. Um, wages are only up $1.5 trillion. So the amount of your income that's actually spendable as opposed to phantom, you know, vacation days and other benefits that you can't actually fill up a gas tank with and pay your mortgage with, you know, create an even larger gap that you've got to navigate between your your spending um, and what you're taking home. And so, you know, this is why you've had this incredible pressure on saving as people have had to dip into savings and, and borrow on their credit cards. So credit card growth over that same span that, you know, spending is up $2.4 trillion and wages are only up one and a half. Not surprisingly, credit card borrowing is up $900 billion. So it's exactly the difference between those two numbers. Um, and again, you know, it seems patently clear that people aren't doing this because they want to. Um, they're doing it because they have to. And sort of on a more micro level, one thing I look at as a sign of distress is the performance of Walmart relative to the rest of the retail sector. Um, because in times past, when more and more people have to, you know, walk in the front door of Walmart rather than going, you know, to JCPenney or well, that's not a good example, but Nordstrom, let's say, um, it's an indicator of a turn in the cycle. And it's been a great sort of uh, marker of when the economy is starting to decelerate or when it's starting to accelerate. When Walmart starts to outperform, it's a bad sign. And Walmart starts to underperform, things are usually looking up. So it's interesting today that all the chatter is about how well Walmart's doing, and yet everyone seems to be convinced that the economy is just fine. Episode 44 was one of our most popular episodes of this series. We were joined by two good friends of mine, Peter Atwater and Ben Hunt, and we talked about the mind games involved in trying to harness market psychology. First up, Peter Atwater. I love the fact that we can't share a pot of coffee anymore. Right. That, you know, we, we each need our own individual brew prepared precisely the way we want it. And, and what I found in looking at you know, uh, sort of subjective data over and over and over were these patterns that when confidence is low, self-interest close physical and ethnic proximity and near-term time horizons, that, that me here now behavior that you talk about, dominates all of our preferences. And it's not just in one thing, it's in everything. And, you know, the selfie is another perfect example of that. And what you saw beginning really at the end of the banking crisis was this era of me here now thinking. And I think it's noteworthy that it began in technology and, and what we would consider the social media space that 
the the way we are behaving mirrors it almost mirrored it almost immediately. We saw the same thing in food, the rise in craft brewing and the the real customization that you need in food versus the the craft and Heinz and the the big food era of the 1960s. But increasingly you're seeing that migrate into behaviors as far as immigration reform and political decision-making that things that take slower time frames to coalesce are really beginning to take hold. And I, and I think we're seeing that we've already seen that in immigration or what I would consider to be labor migration, but now we're seeing it in, in capital migration. Uh, I thought it was really noteworthy a couple of weeks ago that after the Paradise Papers were published, there was criticism of the Queen for investing overseas. There's been crit- criticism aimed at uh, universities and colleges in the United States for investing abroad. Uh, at the same time, there have been uh, criticism labeled at technology companies for accepting what would be considered or might be considered dirty money from abroad. So we're already adopting me here now behaviors as it relates to how investors should and can be investing today. The backlash era, I started to notice during the 2016 political uh, election in the United States that what we were seeing was political backlash on the far right that had had arisen um, really in, in opposition to what had been going on on the left. And in some ways, I think it also is evident in the, in the continued uh, strength of Bernie Sanders on the left versus a more centrist Hillary Clinton. What we've also started to see is backlash building on and leading to further backlash. So the Women's March in Washington right after President Trump was elected, I would put as a as a example of social backlash that has now manifested in the the temperament behind these sexual harassment disclosures, the uh, victories of of women in the elections that just took place in the United States. And what I expect we will soon see is further backlash now against that, that people will be reacting negatively to the rise of women and a, a small tribe will look to, to take back turf that they think they've lost. We're seeing the same thing as you mentioned in, in technology where powerful Silicon Valley has been viewed to be corrupted, and so people want to take that back. And I think we're just starting to, to see 
backlash leading to backlash leading to backlash. It's sort of a, a ping pong game. But what's happening in the process is the, the social norms are being tested at every turn. And, and that, that creates you know, more and more fragmentation and more and more divide and tribalism. You have political, you have voter confidence in Congress at 12%. I think the president's latest approval ratings put confidence in him in the mid to upper 30s. And then you have bipartisan support of the U.S. military that ranges in the mid-70s. And that, to me, is noteworthy in that it is the exact opposite of what we saw in the 1960s. So just the sense that the pendulum has swung from one very negative view you know, 45 years ago to a view today that is exceptionally positive. And I think that that creates an environment where it becomes remarkably easy for some kind of military intervention in American leadership. And if you if you watch today the the belittling and and badgering that the left and right are doing particularly on the congressional front they are unknowingly um revealing and identifying further and further weaknesses and reasons for Americans to have lost faith in Congress as a as a real viable leadership group. You have unprecedented polarization of views of Donald Trump. And so should there be an an event, a, a something that triggers a need for change in leadership I think it is remarkably easy for the military or a group of military leaders to say, you know what, we are the right choice to step in here and restore calm, given the, the public view that, that, again, is bipartisan uh, towards the U.S. military today. I've had folks on the left who who have said, you know, uh, you know without without prompting that they would uh, much prefer to see a military leader than the current administration, which to me is just a striking right. statement. After listening to Peter, Ben Hunt joined us to talk about the difference between public knowledge and common knowledge. What I've been writing about or talking about for 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 a while now is is one of these critical um, aspects of game theory, and it's called common knowledge. Because when you think about games, and you know, we're all familiar with different aspects of, of game theory. So if you've ever watched any, you know, police procedural, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, Criminal Minds, CSI, any any of these any of these shows, 
we're very familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, right? That's, that's a game that we're all familiar with. And there are other games like chicken that everyone knows, and then there are lots of kind of variations on all this. But when you think about a game, when you think about playing the player, here's the crucial aspect. The crucial aspect is that not only are you trying to figure out how to play the other players, but every other player is trying to figure out how to play you. Right. This is right. not a one-way right. street. It's, 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 it's not that you're the only one who's smart enough to figure out how the game is played. You know, on the contrary, we're all smart enough to figure out we need to play the player. And the question is, well, what in the, in the lingo, what emergent properties come out of a situation where everyone is trying to figure out how everyone else is going to behave? Yeah, and and like I say, this 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 notion of what is called in game theory, and I think is the 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 fundamental game of markets, the game of trying to figure out how other market participants are going to react. If you you know go on Wikipedia or something like that, you can look it up as the common knowledge game. That's what it's called in modern game theory lingo, common knowledge game. And what I want to do to to, to kind of explain what is common knowledge and why that is different from public knowledge or public information it's not the same thing as your as your as you as you mentioned in the introduction here common knowledge is information that we all think that everyone else thinks let me repeat that cuz it's so it's so, it's so yeah, crucial it's, it's not important. it's not it's not public information it can be private information but it's information that we think everyone else thinks and what drives common knowledge? Well, this is the, so now game theory has introduced another concept, and it's called the missionary. So what happens, and the, the, the classic example of this is a, uh, is a island, you know, a desert island with a tribe where the missionary comes there and stands up in front of everyone and makes a statement. And... It's not whether or not we believe the, 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 the missionary is, is necessarily telling the truth or not. What the islanders recognize, though, or what they believe, is that everyone else in the tribe also heard that statement. If we believe that everyone else heard this, we have to act as if it is true. In the example of the common knowledge game, that would be the case of somebody makes an announcement uh, and it could happen through an advertisement. The, you know, the, the the way that missionaries work is what what I where I want to go with the rest of this conversation because that's what we want to look for for seeing how this can drive the game in terms of our investments today. But in a, a missionary is or a missionary statement is is just something that has wide enough media play that all of us think that all of the rest of us heard it. That's what creates common knowledge. What drives sentiment is this very rational process. It's not by accident. It's not because uh, we, you know, we don't understand what's going on. No, on the contrary, what Keynes wrote about in the 30s and what you know, we've observed throughout markets through antiquity is that we're all pretty damn smart. We're all smart enough to figure out how the game is played. And what we are all, though, hardwired to respond to is the creation of common knowledge through a prominent missionary. And that's all a missionary is, someone who can speak loudly enough, clearly enough, 
Not that we believe it, but that we think that everyone else heard yeah. it. And that's what drives things. So you ask, well, what does Harvey Weinstein have to do with this? Well, Harvey <laughs> Weinstein is a perfect example to me of how common knowledge is created and how it changes behavior in such profound and rapid ways. And if people want other examples, you should just think of the old uh, Hans Christian Andersen story of the, the emperor's new clothes, because that's the other classic, in that case, stable of how the common knowledge actually works. Here's what I mean by that. The knowledge that Harvey Weinstein was a serial rapist, and I, and I use that word intentionally, right, that he was a serial abuser and rapist of women, this public knowledge, right? I mean, we had, we had TV shows, uh, 30 Rock. Um, yeah, I think you, we were talking earlier, you mentioned uh, Family Guy. Family Guy, yeah. Right, right, right? Where, where they're making jokes about how, what Harvey Weinstein does to women. And yet, there was no change in the behavior of people, right? This didn't, this didn't um, come to a head. This didn't, we, we didn't see the, 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 the actions of people until we have a missionary enter the scene. Who is the missionary in the case? In this case, is Rose McGowan. Yeah. Right? And, and so what we're talking about with a missionary is someone who can speak loudly enough, clearly enough, on some sort of media platform that has a wide enough scope and, and um, um, uh, strength so that all of us believe that everyone else heard what was being said. Because even though, you know, jokes were being made on 30 Rock or Family Guy or the like, nobody believed that everyone knew yeah. about Harvey Weinstein. Right. It wasn't until Rose McGowan takes to Twitter and it becomes this cause celeb where everyone knows that everyone knows that Harvey Weinstein is this sexual abuser. That's when behavior changes. Right. And it, it, it here's it here's whose behavior changes. His lawyers, his board of directors, his publicists, you know, even his wife. You know, all of a sudden they are shocked, shocked yes. to hear yes. that, that, that Harvey Weinstein is this is this rapist, and they're they're saying, "Well, of course we're going to have nothing more to do with him." Nothing changed in their private knowledge of Harvey Weinstein. Right? They knew what kind of a man he was and what he had been doing. Nothing had changed in terms of the public knowledge of Harvey Weinstein. What changed? Everything changed with the common knowledge around Harvey Weinstein, that when a missionary comes on the scene, like Rose McGowan did, and is able to speak loudly enough and clearly enough so that all of Weinstein's supporters believed that everyone else knows the story, whether they did or not, that's when their behavior changes. And I'll tell you this too, Grant, that's when the victim's behavior changed as well. Yes, right. That's, that that it, it it gives the um, ability, and again, these are these are all very rational decisions that are being made. That you can come forth and tell your story now that the common knowledge exists that the emperor has no clothes, or in the case of Weinstein, you know, truly he was act, you know, acted with, with without clothes in a lot of cases. Right. It is that right. creation of common knowledge 
the impact of a missionary so that we all think that everyone else thinks something, that's what changes behavior. And it changes in a heartbeat. Once that common knowledge is created, right, the change in behavior, whether it's in terms of the, um, uh, the, the, the show business world around Harvey Weinstein, around the investment world around markets, behavior changes so quickly once common knowledge is created. And, and I think that that's the key for us to think about potential changes in markets. In episode 45, Jesse Felder returned to the show to talk about the FANG stocks, and in particular, the way perception of these tech behemoths is shifting. You always have a group in every bull market, a group that is the you know the leadership, and these stocks you know individually also become priced for perfection. I started thinking about okay, what does that mean, and is that true regarding these these companies? And when you look at the valuations, the way I look at valuations um, for these stocks is not necessarily relative to the broad market. I, I like to look at what's the valuation of the company relative to its own history, yeah. and how are the fundamentals in that company changing? And I, I think that's when you look at the stocks that way. They they all trade at their highest valuations in years, even while risks to their business models are, are rising. I recently recorded a conversation um, with uh, Roger McNamee, uh, who was one of the first investors in Facebook. He was the, basically the one who convinced Mark Zuckerberg not to sell Facebook to Yahoo for a billion dollars. He also intro introduced Sheryl Sandberg to Mark when they were trying to figure out how to monetize the platform. So, I mean, a guy who's been instrumental in the history of Facebook, who's now absolutely terrified by what the, these platforms are now capable of. So, uh, you know, I, I think people are waking up to this, not just inside the industry, but, uh, you know, Washington is waking up to this. Congress is waking up to this. And, and uh, eventually, the users of the platforms are going to realize, you know, how they're being manipulated. And I think that's, you know, there's, there's dangers to these companies from a lot of different areas now. You know, I, I talked with uh, uh, Peter Atwater about this, and he says, you know, welcome to the backlash yeah. era, that these, you know, the, these signs of populism and people are fed up with politics, you know, po politics as usual, um, this backlash towards um, sexual harassers, which is absolutely justified, um, but it's it's becoming very popular to to um, you know, ba to uh, I guess revolt against bullies, and this is this is a, a theme that's you know growing in society, and I think it's starting now to turn towards these these big corporate bullies, you know, and and Amazon is the one that comes to mind to me that is just kind of coming in and, and taking over industries and putting retailers out of business and and kind of doing it with impunity, and um, you know th th this backlash era is going to start to turn. I think we're already seeing it turn towards big tech. And Amazon's a really interesting example because investors have given the company a lot of slack to um, you know, grow uh, the top line without any profits. Uh, but if you know, regulatory um, you know, uh, capabilities and, and uh, will changes so that, you know, we're not just looking at companies that are squeezing consumers for, for profits, but we look at companies that have, you know, incredible power to, um, you know, take over industries. Uh, you know, Amazon's growth 
is going to come into question because I think the reason that they're looking at getting into all these other businesses is well, how are we going to continue to grow 20, 30 percent a year in you know these traditional uh, you know retail? I mean, they went from books to broader retail. They have to keep expanding into other sectors and other uh, other areas in order to keep that growth going. And so there's a I think we're we're potentially going to see an interesting inflection point where Amazon is going to try and get into other industries and if Washington decides to not allow them to do that anymore, then the growth is going to come down. And I think investors are going to have to, you know, begin to demand that they turn on the profit spigot. And are they really capable of doing that? So I, I think that that day could come sooner than most people are, are thinking. And I think this is one area where people don't understand that this is this is a, a bipartisan issue. I mean, both sides of the aisle are kind of on board with greater regulations for these companies. And um, you know, you have you, you hear liberals talking about it. Uh, you know, they were really harsh towards uh, you know during the the hearings, harsh towards um, you know the, the the attorneys that represented the companies. Um, but also, you have you know Steve Bannon who said you know Republicans are going to make it their primary issue to regulate big tech next year. And so, you know, this is this is this is a big deal. And you know, it was interesting for me to talk with Roger McNamee about this because he says investors should be really praying that these companies get more highly regulated. Because if they don't, the path that they're on right now, we're going to see a massive user revolt. That they're basically they're using uh, the, the the members of these platforms to such a degree, you know, we see all the studies, you know, more you use Facebook, the unhappier you are. That's you know direct result of these platforms trying to manipulate people to make them consume what they want them to do, that if they keep keep going in this direction, they're going to lose their user base as people start getting fed up with being manipulated like this. So, you know, his point was investors in these companies should be, should really be hoping uh, for greater regulation because that's probably the one thing that's going to save, their, save them at this point. Now, those of you paying careful attention will have noticed that Somewhere along the way, I skipped an episode, and that was episode 40, where we spoke about the shifting sands beneath Elon Musk and Tesla, and I put out a plaintive cry for somebody to come on and state the bull case. Now, I'm happy to announce that I think I've found my bull. So we will bring him onto the show early in the new year, and you can hear someone talk about the bull case for Tesla. In the meantime, here's Mark Spiegel laying out some of the more bearish aspects of the Tesla story. Well, I'd say that, that um, number one, <clears throat> the way to make money in the market is, is to have a different opinion from, from prevailing consensus on the price, right? And, and that, that goes long or short. You know, if you think something's worth a lot more, you think something's worth a lot less. So at that point, you're basically saying the market's wrong. I've been absolutely amazed at how much uh, Musk has been able to get away with, number one. And number two, and how blind people are to what's coming down the pike uh, competitively versus what Tesla has in terms of anything, you know, proprietary and sort of a moat. I mean, to me, this stuff has been obvious for, you know, three or four years. And yet, you know, it's still not obvious, apparently, to, to, the, to, to the, you know, uh, portfolio managers at Fidelity and Bailey Gifford. So I, I don't have an explanation for that. But you know, unless these people are absolute cretins, one morning they'll wake up and say, oh, what do I really own here? And that'll be it. I don't know when that morning is. Heck, if I knew when that morning was, I would have been long. The, I would have been long the stock for the last <laughs> three and a half or four years. 
and I'd showed it the day before. I mean, this is not like a, this is not a religious situation for me the way it is with, with the Musk, Musk, Muscovites or, you know, Teslarians. You know, I want, I think there's a great opportunity to make money here. And if I thought I could make it both ways, I would, but it's a very dangerous game to buy sort of a bubble stock scammy company because you think you're going to get out of it in time. You know, then you could be the guy who's long that morning it gaps down a hundred dollars, you know? Buying a bubble stock is always dangerous, but never more so than right before earnings announcements. Yesterday, Tesla released their Q3 numbers. And for those who believe the company is heading for trouble, they contain plenty of data points that reinforce the bear case. Well, first of all, the, the, the results were even more disastrous than I than I could have anticipated. I mean, I figured on a gap basis they they lose around maybe you know close to 500 million in the quarter. They lost well north of 600 million, um, and and probably more important, he drastically reduced uh, guidance on Model Three production for 2018. Originally, it was going to be 5,000 a week uh, by the end of this quarter. But in other words, by the end of 2017. Now he, he said they're hoping to do it by the end of Q1 of 18, but he apparently has completely pulled guidance to be producing 10,000 a week by the end of 2018, which they had been saying and reiterating for, for the longest time. And now they're making up some retroactive um, bullshit that it was always their plan to not install that second line until this other line was up and running smoothly for a while. So he's backpedaling on that other guidance. Now, in fact, the guys I've read and spoken to who have done a lot of research on this thing tell me that there's no way in the world we'll be building 5,000 of these a week uh, by the end of Q1. And he probably almost certainly won't be able to build 5,000 a week even by the end of next year. And the other interesting piece of nonsense he put in here they had uh, uh, gross margins in the 18% range on their cars. Now, they calculate their gross margin in a way that no other automaker does. I've written about it on Seeking Alpha. You can find it there. I mean, if, if, if they calculated their gross margins the way the entire rest of the industry does, they'd be like in the mid-single digits. But take that as it is, they had an 18% gross margin in the quarter on these Model S's and S's. They claim that they will rapidly ramp to a 25% gross margin on the Model 3, which is a car that sells for half the price. This is absolutely the most nonsensical bullshit I've ever seen. I can't believe he, he thinks people are stupid enough to believe it, but to his credit, so far he's been right, you know, in the four years I've been short the stock. So, so anyway, uh, it's really a disastrous report. Uh, any way you look at it. And, uh, you know, I, I stand by everything I said earlier in the interview, which is, you know, the equity in this company is is essentially a zero. And um, I think it's headed for bankruptcy. Well, it'll take a few years. You can sell a lot of stock on the way down if you've got a liquid stock, you know, that's that's in three digits. And, you know, they will sell a lot of stock on the way down. But I have zero doubt as to where this thing is going. Well, that concludes not just the Best of Clips episode, but season two of Adventures in Finance. James, what a ride it's been. Yeah. Now, before we go, uh, the T's and C's. Now, this week, the legal disclaimer is being read by the guy who does the terms and conditions on all those TV adverts. So let's hand it over to him. 
Anything you heard in this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week, we will be taking a, well, I was going to say well-earned break, but that's not really our call to make, is it? That's not really our call to make at all. We'll be taking a break next week, but we will return on January the 11th with the first in Season 3 of Adventures in Finance. And we've got a few surprises up our sleeve, so make sure you join us then. If you've got an interesting question about uh, anything you've heard in Seasons 1 or 2 of Adventures in Finance, or any thoughts you might have about what you'd like to hear in Season 3, then please do send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then do subscribe to us on iTunes. Yes, we love those reviews. The new year, new start, leave reviews. What a great New Year's resolution. Yeah, leave a, leave a review so. every week. Uh, to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter, at Real Vision. And you will also find us, should you be skulking around in the background, on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Is that Real what you Vision. do? Is that what you do? I don't skulk. You skulk a lot. I'm not a skulker. I've never skulked. I could skulk. Yeah. Well, I suppose if, if you search for Real Vision, you might find uh, Grant skulking somewhere. Well, you can teach me how to skulk. <laughs> You're one of the last great skulkers. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIF James. Yes, indeedy. That's it from us for this week and for this season. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we will see you in a couple of weeks for Season 3 of Adventures in Finance. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.